So hey, if you've got a Bible, you can turn in it to the Gospel according to John. We'll be in chapter 15. We're going to kind of hone in in verses 12 through to 17. Um, again, if it's your first time here or first time in the last couple weeks, I may not have met you. My name's Travis. I have been gone a lot this summer. Uh, I just recently got back from Stockholm, Sweden. I was there for a grand total of 48 hours. <laughs> Ikea is the Walmart of Sweden. I can confirm that. Um, and so I was really grateful that our high school pastor, Shane Drury, was able to fill in for me last week and kind of focus us on this particular section of John's gospel. We've been going through John's gospel for a long time. This is just kind of what we do as a ministry. We normally do a few different like topical series throughout the year, and then we pick one book of the Bible and we sit in it for about a year. And at the end of that time, I normally regret how little time we took going through it. Uh, and so we've been in John since December. And we've been trying to go like one chapter a week. So we don't do every single verse because that would take us years instead of year. Uh, but we'll do one chapter of John and then we'll skip to the next chapter. Maybe we'll skip a chapter or two. But, but for the next couple weeks, we are really honing in on chapters 15 and 16 and 17. Uh, we're going to kind of focus a little bit more on, on this text than we have in the rest of the series. Because in a lot of ways, this is... Jesus's farewell speech. Uh, this is the last really big chunk of dialogue from Jesus before he goes to the cross. And one of the things that we just sort of sense in our culture is that whatever somebody chooses to use the last bit of their life to say is probably important. We have this idea of like famous last words. So if, if you're on the edge of death and you choose to use the time you have left to say a particular thing, it must have some sort of weight. And obviously Jesus knows that, that he's not just staying dead, and yet he does know he is about to die. And so he spends a good bit of time unpacking these, these massive themes and these really significant things that are important for us as Christians. So last week, Shane talked about um, Jesus talking about being the vine and, and us being like branches. And when we attach ourselves to the vine that's Christ, we bear fruit. In the same way that you can cut a branch off of a tree and it's no longer alive, it, it doesn't produce leaves, it doesn't produce anything of value. When we're cut off from Christ, who is the vine, um, our spiritual lives, they wither and they, they fall apart. And Jesus, as he's, he, he's keenly aware of the fact that he's leaving, he's interested in explaining to the disciples how they should relate to one another and then he's interested in warning them about what they should expect in the way that they relate to the world outside. Um, my dad, when we were younger, was pretty high up in the, the Bank of America corporate ladder. I don't actually know what his job was, but I know that he was good at it and he made a lot of money. Um, not anymore, we don't have any money. <laughs> but, um, but because he was so sort of high up in the corporate ladder, especially while he had that job, he, he moved on to a different job when I think I was like 11 or 12. Um, he was gone a lot. He was gone like three weeks out of the month. And I remember almost every time my dad would leave, he would sit down with me when it was just me, or he would sit down with my brother and he would give us sort of like Thurman's farewell speech. And my dad, if you wonder why I'm the pessimist I am, it's because Thurman made me that way. And so he, he'd say, now son, I'm leaving, I'm gonna be gone. <laughs> he was very emphatic about the finality of his, his leaving. And normally what he would do when he would sort of say goodbye to me and my brother is he would tell us how to treat each other. 
You, you boys need to be nice to each other. That was what he always said. He still asks, have you been nice to each other, right? You boys need to be nice to each other. You need to take care of your mom. He starts by saying, hey, here's how things are gonna, while I'm gone, here's how things are gonna work in the house. Everyone's gonna be nice. And then after that, and this is where the paranoia of Travis sets in, he would be like, now if a stranger knocks on the door, (laughs) and then he would run through the laundry list of doomsday scenarios. Here's how you interact with everybody outside. So he would start with, here's how you interact with each other. And then he would go, here's how things are gonna go while I'm gone when you interact with the world. And that's kind of the the pattern of what Jesus is doing here. Um, He starts by telling the disciples how they are to relate to one another while he's gone and how we, by extension, as disciples of Jesus now are to relate as we wait for his return. And he says it in this way in chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master's doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So Jesus sort of begins, if you can think back to my dad getting ready to leave, he begins by saying to the disciples, here's how in-house relationships are gonna look. You are to love one another. But, But he doesn't just sort of say, love one another and figure out for yourself what that means or figure out for yourself what that looks like. He says, love one another in the same way that I've loved you. And that's, that's a kind of a fascinating thing because it happens again and again and again in the New Testament, that the paradigm for how we relate to each other is how Jesus relates to us. So, so husbands, love your wives the way that Christ loves the church. Or, or what Paul said in the passage we read in Philippians, serve one another like Christ has served us. Jesus' relationship to us is sort of the, the, the picture of how we relate to one another. But Jesus actually says something that, that I think is really interesting, and maybe you didn't catch this. Um, our relationship to one another, our love for one another, is sort of the thermometer for our relationship to Jesus. Maybe you didn't catch that. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on to verse 14, and he says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. One of the phrases that that was really common, it's it's not so common anymore, but especially when I started doing college ministry five years ago, um, and even in my circles of friends, like now, I'm constantly hearing, I love Jesus, I just hate the church. Or I love Jesus, but I hate Christians. And yet what Jesus actually says is, you are my friends if you do what I command you to do, and what I command you to do is to love the people that I've loved. It's it's an irreconcilable statement to say, I love Jesus, I just hate the people that Jesus loves. And and if you were to kind of take that and like apply it to just a normal relationship, it doesn't make any sense. So like imagine you're dating somebody. Maybe you don't have to imagine that. Maybe you are dating somebody. 
So suppose you're talking to the person that you're dating and you say, I love you so, so, so much. I just hate your parents. I hate all of your friends. I hate your coworkers. I hate your dog. That's not a bad thing though. I love your cat. <laughs> that does it. There feels, it feels disingenuous, doesn't it? Like, I love you. It's just that every person you love and is significant to you, I despise. That is like a recipe for relational disaster. And yet it's really easy for us to do that in our relationship with Jesus. I love Jesus. I just hate all the people that Jesus loves. I hate all the people that Jesus has sought out and saved and redeemed. It, it makes no sense. And so Jesus calls it what it is. Here's how you know this is not what makes you, my friend. It's not what makes you a Christian, but here's a good indicator that you are. You love the other people that I've saved. That's a question worth asking. Like, not just do you love Jesus, but do you love the church? Now, now I realize there's maybe some, some tension there that we, that we might feel because the church has done a lot of really bad things, a lot of really really bad things. And all you need to do is thumb through the news to see more bad things that the church continues to do. And so, so maybe you feel that tension there and go, okay, so, so I love Jesus and, and I, I'm trying to track with what he's saying, but how do I love the church when it's so corrupt, when there's so many failures and shortcomings and abuses and things that take place? And, and here's where it's, it's really, really, really important to frame love in a biblical sense and not a cultural sense. Because culturally, we have this idea that what love looks like is unconditional and unceasing affirmation. Like, my friends love me because they always have my back no matter what. I'm sure I've heard people say things like that. I'm sure I've said things like that before. Like, if you're my friend, you've got my back. And yet, that's not really love. Like, like no right-thinking human being is going to love their friend while they drive their lives over a cliff by patting them on the back and saying, push down on that gas pedal. And love in the biblical sense, it's, it's not just um, kindness and words of affirmation and pats on the back. No, love in the biblical sense is also being willing in kindness to speak harsh truths being willing to love someone enough to tell them you are doing something stupid, like you are making a mistake, you're wrong. And I don't love you any less, I love you through telling you the truth so that you don't derail your life. That's the, the, the biblical sort of scope and shape of love. And can I just say, like, that's what Jesus' love for the disciples looks like. He says, love one another as I have loved you, love one another. And then you can sort of thumb back earlier in John's gospel or earlier in the other gospels. And Jesus's love for the disciples looks like him caring for them, you know, providing food for them, right? Multiplying fishes and loaves. And then it also looks like Jesus staring Peter in the eye, staring Peter in the eyes and saying, you're acting like Satan, get behind me. He actually calls Peter Satan. And yet he's the rock on which Jesus builds his church. The love of Jesus doesn't just look like pats on the back. Sometimes it looks like 
convictional punches in the face. And so I say this because when we, when we hear we have to love the church, what I'm not saying is that we have to say everything that Christians have ever done is okay and I put my seal of approval on it. Sometimes loving the church looks like us saying, hey, this is wrong. Like, hey, we're in sin here. Hey, we've, we've gotten something wrong. Yet the, even that is born out of love if we do it in the way that Jesus informs us to. But it's interesting that Jesus sort of goes on and he says this as if he's sort of driving the point home. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go. You should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I've commanded you so that you will love one another. Um, one of my favorite authors, I won't call him a theologian because he wouldn't even call himself that, um, C.S. Lewis, who a lot of people are familiar with, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which are a great book series and a decent movie series. Um, and he, he published this book in 1942 that got him in a bit of trouble called The Screwtape Letters. And it got him in trouble because he published it without any sort of like a warning as to what it was. Uh, so if you haven't read the Screwtape Letters, it's basically written from the perspective of a, a high-ranking demon. And he's writing to give advice to a lower-ranking demon. And the, the lower-ranking demon has been given this job, which is that he is assigned to a patient, which is a human being. And his job is to get that human being to end up in hell. And so Screwtape is giving all of this advice for how to get people sent to hell. And so all of these prim and proper Church of England British people read this, not knowing that it was sort of a parody, and they thought C.S. Lewis had like converted to Satanism. And he got a whole bunch of hate mail for it because nobody knew what they're actually reading. Um, but in, in the book, uh, the, the, the main, the human being who never actually speaks um, decides to visit church one day. And so Screwtape writes to his nephew who's assigned to the patient. And he says, here's how you're gonna keep him from loving the people in his church. Point out how out of key the woman in the pew in front of him sings and how annoying that is. Point out how bad the guy next to him smells. And like how, how he just wishes that the guy would take a bath. It would be so easy if he just took a bath. Point out how he doesn't like the political opinions of the person who's sitting in the pew behind him. Point out how he doesn't like the sense of humor of, of the speaker, the, the preacher, the minister. Point out all of these little things, all of these things that he is bothered by in these people and you will drive a wedge between him and all of these Christians and we'll get him straight to hell. How easy is it for us to do the same thing though? Like when, when we hear Jesus say, love one another, Jesus's final commandments, he's leaving the house and he points to us as Christians, the siblings, me and my brother, and he says, take care of one another, love one another. And we go, I've seen the stuff that person posts on Facebook. I'm gonna pass. People don't even use Facebook anymore. Whatever like the new social media cool thing is. Um, we say, I, <laughs> I know the decisions that person's made. I, I can pass on loving them. Maybe the people like a few seats behind me but, but not the rest of them. This person smells, maybe not literally, right? But, but we find all of these reasons why 
it's okay to exempt ourselves from loving these people. And yet, here's what Jesus says, and it's to ground our love. He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And then he goes on in verse 17 and says, these things I command you so that you'll love one another. So it would be easy to look at verse 16 and see in it sort of support for um, like predestination or, or, or Calvinism, which we can talk about. I actually think that it's, it's very much there. And yet the reason why Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you, is so that we'll love one another. Have you ever caught that? Like the reason why Jesus says this is so that you will love the person next to you. It's as if Jesus says, hey, all of these Christians that bother you to no end, they're here because I chose for them to be here. And so while you might be frustrated with them, they're the people I picked to put next to you. And so if you love me and if you trust me, then you need to trust that I picked the right people. If we love Christ, if we trust Christ, then even when we don't always understand the people that are our brothers and sisters, we choose to love and serve them because Jesus has loved and chosen them right alongside of us. This is all pretty ethereal, right? Love one another, take care of one another. That's vague. Everybody can pat themselves on the back and say, I've probably done that. What, What does it look like? Concretely, what does it look like to put boots on the ground here? Um, just, just a, a couple, just a couple thoughts about what it looks like to love one another, practically speaking. Um, one, pray for each other. Like I realize that that is Sunday school, youth group, Jesus, the Bible, pray sort of an answer to a question, but it is profound because we're going to go a little bit further in John 17, and Jesus is going to pray for us. He's gonna say specifically, I don't just pray for the apostles, I pray for all who will believe. That is one of the ways, and I don't know if you've thought about this, one of the ways that Jesus has loved you is by praying for you. So do we love one another by praying for one another? And not just sort of at a distance, like mentally going, yeah, I prayed for Susie today. But, but do you actually verbalize that? Do you ever just say to somebody you're praying for, hey, just so you know, I'm praying for you. That is, that's profound. Um, I can think back to maybe two years ago. I was just going through the ringer with just some work-related stuff and some, some personal stuff. And I was having one of those really hard conversations with God that would shock people if they knew pastors had conversations with God like this. Uh, and I distinctly remember it. I was leaving foundation. Uh, I was driving up Franklin towards my apartment. And I remember saying to God, I love you, but I don't get you. And it doesn't feel like you like me a whole lot. And I heard my phone buzz. And I waited until a stoplight to check it. <laughs> I picked up my phone, and it was a text from God. No, it wasn't an text. <laughs> I picked up my phone, and it was it was a text from a friend of mine who I use the term friend, um, but I hadn't shared any of this with him. I hadn't shared any of this with anybody. And he said, "Hey, this is weird. I don't normally do this. I just felt like I should pray for you. I just wanted you to know I've been praying for you the last few hours." And I might have gotten really misty-eyed in that moment. (laughs) Like, I I might have had a bit of an emotional breakdown. Um, Because the fact is, he could have prayed for me, and it would have been every bit as effective, right? God heard him, whether he told me or not. But in telling me that he was loving me through prayer, that he was loving me by standing before the Father on my behalf, the love of God towards me became tangible. 
in a really profound way. So, so we love one another as Christ has loved us when we pray for one another. And I would encourage you, name that. Don't just do it, name it. Let people know, hey, I'm praying for you. Or even better, pray with them. Like if somebody asks you, hey, can, can you pray for me? Just do it. Let's pray right now. The, the other way that, that we can tangibly do this that we can love one another as Christ has loved us is by doing what Jesus does so frequently, telling the truth when it's difficult. Right? It may sound strange when Jesus looks at Peter and says, Satan, get behind me. But he is loving Peter by doing it. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do for one another is in grace saying, hey, you need to repent. Hey, you need to turn from this. Gosh, can I tell you the number of times that godly people have loved me by saying, Travis, you're, a, you're an idiot. <laughs> They've used harsher language and it was really effective. <laughs> Travis, you're being an idiot. You, you need to return to the Lord in this. It's a, it's a tangible way that we love one another. And the last way is, is sort of what we saw in, um, in Philippians, where Paul says if there's any uh, comfort in Christ's work, if there's any affection, any love for one another. Look into the interests of one another. Have um, the mindset of Christ, who even though he was in very nature God, took on the form of a servant, made himself nothing. We love one another well when we serve each other. And that looks like a whole lot of different things. That, that might look practically like you actually serving here at our church. Um, Keith and the folks from the welcome team are going to be here after service to talk about a way that you can love our church by welcoming people into it. There's a practical, tangible way to love and serve in, in the similar way to the way that Christ has loved us by welcoming people just like Christ has welcomed us into the kingdom. Sometimes that looks like financial sacrifice. Sometimes that looks like you giving of your time and your energy towards somebody who's lacking. And... and there, there are profound, found. I are going on a fast. <laughs> and I looked at like the number of cans of cat food that I had and the number of days I had to go and the number of cans of human food I had and the number of days I had to go and I looked at the cat and I said, fishes and loaves, man. <laughs> it's going to have to multiply. <laughs> um, and it, it was my fault, and so I was like, I might have, I might have to go hungry a couple of meals. Um, until I walked out of work one day, and I found an envelope on my windshield uh, that a brother had placed there with enough money to get me through the week to the paycheck. And again, I hadn't said anything about it. He said, I felt like the Lord was calling me to serve you in this way. Um, I don't say any of this to make you think that this sort of stuff happens all the time. I say this because this is one of the ways that God loves us is through sacrificially um, giving, Christ taking the form of a servant, enduring hardship and affliction for our sake, experiencing lack so that we might be made rich. And in the same way, we love one another well when we do that. And that might look like you giving of your time to serve on the welcome team or to serve in children's ministry or to serve in high school ministry. That might look like you giving of your time to just sit down and encourage somebody who's sad and struggling. That might look like you putting an envelope on somebody's windshield. 
We love each other well when we do things like that. These things, Jesus says, I command you so that you will love one another. Here's how you treat each other while I'm out of the house. The um, author of this book, John the Evangelist, uh, went on to write three more books or three more letters in the New Testament, and then he went on to write the book of Revelation. Um, if you're not familiar with this, John writes Revelation from the island of Patmos. He's, he's in exile. Patmos is basically the Australia of the ancient world. If you don't know this, Australia was like a prison colony. So England would send all of its prisoners to Australia to die there. Uh, Patmos was that. So John is exiled to Patmos to die there. And most people think that's probably what happened. But what church history says, if if we can trust it here, is that John actually didn't die on Patmos. Um, John was released from Patmos, and he lived out the rest of his life in Ephesus. Um, And in Ephesus, there's a story uh, that, that circulated about John the Evangelist. He lived to be almost 100 years old. Um, so old that he couldn't walk anymore. But he was widely respected in the church because he's the only person there who actually lived and walked with Jesus. And so, so the, the way that church history tells the story, they would carry John in to service every Sunday morning. And they would put him in front of the church and just be like, say something. You know, say something cool, right? Because you're the only one who's been with Jesus. Um, and, and John's sermons got shorter and shorter and shorter as time went on until finally they would carry him in and they would put him in the front of the church and they would just wait for John to talk and he would say, little children love one another. And then they would go, I guess that's all John's got today. And they'd pick him up and they'd move him away. And, <laughs> and I don't know what would happen after that. It's like the short, that's shorter than my sermons, which is crazy. And so they would bring him in every week for who knows how long. And he would say the same thing over and over and over again. Little children love one another. Until finally, the congregation at Ephesus got fed up with John saying the same thing over and over again. And they said, why do you keep saying this? And John said, because it is the Lord's commandment. And if this is all we do, we have done enough. This is the commandment of Jesus. And it is the thermometer, the test for how much you love Jesus. Do you love one another? Jesus says, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. Love one another. That's the commandment of the Lord. And if that is what we do, we do enough. Lord, um, we thank you that you have loved us, that you've loved us by laying down your life for us. Uh, We thank you that you have um, loved us by pouring out the Spirit. Thank you that you've loved us uh, by calling us to repentance and newness of life. God, teach us to love one another, to love one another in the way that you have loved us so that the world would know that we are your disciples. Holy Spirit, give us the strength to do these things in the name of Jesus, to the glory of God the Father, and we say amen.